focused on Jesus and, and moved together with him, with one another. For me, that was a particularly challenging time because the majority of my ministry had been eliminated. I was not supposed to be with people. <laughs> That's like telling a shepherd, you, you are a shepherd and you're going to be paid to be a shepherd and you need to go to school to be a shepherd, but when you're done, you can't, you can't see any sheep. All you can do is make videos that the sheep might watch if they want to. That's what it kind of felt like for me during COVID. It was tough. I'm not going to lie to you guys. I got really tired of preaching to a camera in the back office of our church offices every Sunday because I missed you. I couldn't see you. I didn't know what was going on in your lives. I was really worried that I wasn't doing enough. At other times, I was worried I was doing too much, and I was kind of ping-ponging around in this no-man's land for seven or eight months, and eventually, I just ran out of gas. I lost my motivation. I became angry. I felt deeply exhausted, not just physically, but spiritually and emotionally exhausted, and the thing that told me that I had burnout wasn't just the anger, it wasn't just the exhaustion, it was because it was at the same time as those things, I also had apathy. This is to me one of the most important indicators of burnout. Burnout can see that things are going poorly. Burnout is discouraged because burnout says things are not going to get better, but burnout uniquely has apathy that says, I know things aren't going to get better and I'm not going to try. Everything is terrible, but I can't apply myself. I can't try. I don't have the willpower. I don't have anything left within me to dig down into to push myself enough to break through whatever this problem or season or self-doubt is. My body and mind were both tired. My spirit felt defeated. Uh, I felt like everywhere I turned, professionally, ministerially, I was just futile. The things I was doing didn't matter. Uh, and we talk all the time, right, about being open-handed, that everything is God's work to do, that one plants and other waters and other one harvests, but it's hard to apply those things when you work in ministry. You kind of want to be the guy who's doing all of those things all the time. And I have a natural tendency to overwork. I have a natural tendency to find my identity in the work that I do, like many of you do as well. And so I think, graciously, God allowed me to just hit a wall. I had dipped my toe down into the pit of despair at times, but I had never really touched the bottom of that pit and stayed there for very long. And in that particular period of weeks in my life, you can call it a season if you want to, I was in the pit and God loved me enough to leave me in the pit for a little while. Not to punish me, the pit wasn't the consequence. The pit wasn't the lesson to learn. The pit was the place where I could see myself accurately, where I couldn't put more Band-Aids over the problem, where I couldn't outrun this self sufficiency, this overextension that I was living into. I had to just admit I had been doing it wrong and it wasn't working, period. There was no, so here's the lesson learned and here's how we're going to apply it and we're going to get up in the morning and we're going to go fast again in a new direction and accomplish new things. I had to just linger, just hang out with this sense of burnout that I couldn't turn anywhere else to find any relief. So I did what a lot of us do when we reach a low place. I tried a lot of different things and then finally brought it to Jesus. <laughs> I went lots of other places first, and then I turned to God and said, okay, you've felt fit to leave me here. you felt fit to allow me to reach this conclusion, this point, this wall, this finish line, this stage of burnout. Why? What lessons do you have for me? And out of that came a whole bunch of new things in my life that have been very, very fruitful. Um, the, the spiritual practices in general for me kind of kicked off out of that season. I felt like my spiritual life was mostly dead. It wasn't really a spiritual life at all. And so I began engaging with and digging into how do other Christians experience God? How have Christians through all of church history for thousands of years experienced God? Digging into those things, trying some of them, keeping some, throwing others away. That's inspired a lot of the teaching I've been able to do with you across the last couple of years. And I think that's been a good thing. 
Another major shift for me is I began meeting with a counselor, a Christian man who is also a pastor, who's a couple of decades down the road from me. Uh, He eventually became a marriage counselor for my wife and I because my personal issues had bled over into my most important relationship with my wife, and she had endured a lot of really terrible overextension and self-sufficiency on my part, and so we were working through some of those things together as well. But the most formative practice that I picked up in that time period was the practice of Sabbath. And the reason it was formative is because of how disruptive it was. Of all of the spiritual practices that we have already discussed or that I am hoping and praying that we will someday discuss, Sabbath, I think, has the potential to be both the most transformative and the most challenging. Sabbath, uniquely of the spiritual practices, is sort of an all-in or all-out experience. It's hard to do it halfway. The mindset, the boundaries, the pushing away of other things to focus on and be with God, it requires so much planning and effort that to only do it for an hour or two, it often feels like you've just finally made your way to the door to the room in which you and God want to be, and you're just opening it, and then time runs out. We've talked before about the nature of silence and solitude and how there's this after image, this afterglow of other people that kind of follows us around like the sun burned into your eyes when you look at it in the sky, and it takes time for that to wear off. The same is true of Sabbath. It requires us to separate ourselves. That's the reason that the Bible uses the word holy to describe it. It is separate. It is cut off from the other things. It is set apart. And so what I want to do is I want to take enough time working through Sabbath with you that you really understand why it's important. That's the first place we'll go, which is what we'll talk about today. Then I want to take our time discussing the different pieces of Sabbath, all of which you need in order for Sabbath to be effective. And then I want to give you some time to, kind of like I did, I don't don't want you to go in the pit necessarily, but I want you to linger with that idea. What could change, what could be different, and how might it benefit your life? Sabbath is not primarily about burnout. I want to be clear with that. Sabbath is not God's answer to burnout in the same way that silence and solitude is not just an introvert's way of getting away from a big group of people that we don't want to see. God's purposes are spiritual in nature, and so when he prescribes Sabbath in the scriptures, and we're going to see that in just a few minutes, He does so because he knows that we need it even if we don't know that we need it. The reason that I want to use burnout as the on-ramp into this discussion is I suspect that most of us are either living burnt out right now or are much closer than we think we are. And the reason I can say that with authority is because the speed of life has never been higher than it is right now for humans. We've never accelerated to the speed that we are at now where there is always something to do. Boredom is gone. It's been erased from human existence. There are no more chunks of hours or minutes where there is literally nothing that could be done. There's always a phone. There's always the internet. There's always social media. There's notifications. There's conversations. There's phone calls. There's Marco Polos. There's tweets. There's Facebook posts. There's snaps. I mean, I could go on and on and on. You cannot run out of things that you could be putting your attention on. And so if you want to become the kind of person whose attention drifts to God now and again, you're going to have to carve this out. You're going to have to push back and fight back against the world as it is, against the way that it wants to form you and make you into a high-functioning, always-moving, excessively productive, excessively consuming machine. That's what the world would like to turn you into. So before we get all the way to the Sabbath, I want to define burnout to you. There's lots of different ways to define it. This is my definition. This is what I mean when I talk about burnout. Burnout is a destination. It's a place that you arrive at that is a combination of both apathy and despair. And it's born from overextension and self-sufficiency. When I say overextension, I mean what skiers mean when they say, I got out over my skis. It means I am one small gust of air or stick in the path away from tumbling end over end and totally crashing. (laughs) I'm very, very close to a wreck. Not there yet, but on my way based on the way that I'm living. And as we'll see in a minute, this can be emotional. 
You can overextend yourself emotionally. You can try to live another person's life for them. It can be mental, all the fear and anxiety of this next big move or the next career promotion or what if it doesn't happen or how we're going to pay these bills. You can live in this mental fantasy world that you build that's all of the anxieties of the what-ifs that you carry with you. And it can also be physical. Just a simple lack of nutrition and water and exercise and sleep can put you in a place where you just don't have much to give. So burnout for us is, is when we arrive in this particular place, and if it's hard to kind of grasp the definition as I gave it, here's what burnout says. Maybe this will make more sense to you. Burnout says everything is terrible, and not I don't care, I can't care. Everything is bad. Every horizon on my life is dark right now. The sun is not rising anywhere that I can see. I don't have hope about the future in any facet of my life, but I also don't have the willpower within me to do anything about it. You see, oftentimes when things go poorly for us, those of us who have a strong work ethic or who find our identity baked into our productivity, we just produce more. We just work harder. We go, okay, if life's going to get hard, you know, people say when, when the going gets tough, the tough get going. They just, you step up and it's time to grind and we're going to make it happen. That's great if you have those internal resources to tap. Once you are burnt out, you can't anymore. There is no more give. There is no more dig. There is no more find that next gear, go a little further into yourself and push and try to find something that you can give. Burnout is the state of being unable, not just unwilling, but having no resources left to give. The reason I think I can say that many of us are nearer to burnout than we think we are is because burnout has three really broad causes that are in the DNA of the way that our culture works. So I want to just quickly share with you what I think are the three sources of burnout. And what I imagine to be true is that in the last 12 months, most of us have faced at least two of these three factors. So here they are. The first is fatigue. And as we talked about at the end of the Imago Day series, a person is three-dimensional, right? We have a body, we have a mind, we are a spirit. That's the way that God describes us. It's the way Jesus tells us to worship him, if we're going to worship him holistically. So it stands to reason that those three dimensions of who we are can run out of gas, can become fatigued. In the running world, uh, they sometimes use the word bonk. You guys heard this before? Or when you just run out of resources? Yeah, you just can't anymore. The willpower is there. You would go if you could go. You've trained to go. You want to get to the finish line, but there are no more carbs. There's no more energy. There's nothing left in your blood to keep those muscles firing. You may not know this, but you can also bonk, if you will, mentally. You can bonk emotionally. I think stay-at-home moms bonk all the time. They reach the end of themselves by about 3.30, and dad doesn't pull in the driveway for another two hours. This is what fuels, and you'll laugh when I say this to you, but this is what fuels that very common experience when the stay-at-home spouse says to the other parent, don't touch me, don't talk to me, the kids are yours. They have bonked. They have said, I cannot do it. I don't want to hurt my kids, so I'm keeping them alive, but as soon as somebody will tag me in, I'm out of here. The door's going to close, I'm going to lock it if I'm allowed, and I need to not be around anybody else. Physically, emotionally, spiritually, we can hit fatigue. And fatigue extended over time can lead us to a place where we burn out. But failure is another factor. And I don't just mean when you get something wrong. I mean when you've really put a lot of resources into an objective and you don't meet that objective. What happens when this move to Alaska that was supposed to be the way that you were going to climb the ladder to reach the next promotional rank and then take the next big job back in the lower 48, you were only going to be here for two or three years, you weren't going to be apart from family that long, what happens when that becomes a decade of you continuing to throw yourself at an objective that's always just out of your reach. As a human being, you are not built to constantly throw yourself at an objective that you can't accomplish. You will naturally despair at some point. You will say, you'll learn a lesson. You'll say, I'm not gonna go above and beyond. I'm not gonna give all of myself to the degree that I thought that I needed to, because it doesn't matter. It doesn't make a big difference. Initially, the disappointment of failure, when we've been aiming for a goal and haven't achieved it, we call that just disappointment. 
But if that disappointment repeats itself over and over again, it can actually change you. It can change your character, the way that you view the world, your outlook. We call that disillusionment, deciding that not only do I expect to fail, but I kind of expect everything to fail. And that's a one-way ticket to despair as well. And then finally, fallout. What I mean by fallout is the damage that happens when relationships are broken. In the short term, we would just call this hurt. Somebody hurt my feelings, somebody misunderstood me, somebody with maybe good intentions said a thing in a way that really bugged me or I felt called out or I felt embarrassed or I felt rejected by this person. But over time, if those hurts go unaddressed and unhealed and unforgiven, we talked about this at great length last fall in our forgiveness series, they have a tendency, those hurts have a tendency to sort of work like a saw, back and forth, back and forth, deeper and deeper into you until they become a wound. The difference between a wound and a hurt is a hurt is something that you really only feel when you think about that person who hurt you, when you're around them, when you see something or hear something that reminds you of them. A wound becomes something that you carry even when that person's not on your mind. It's that hurt changing you. It's that hurt teaching you something about yourself, that you're not good enough, that really nobody likes you in the friend group, that secretly we've all been out to get you, that secretly we've all been talking behind your back, that secretly we all think that you're not that good at your job and we just tolerate you here instead of thinking that your ideas are helpful. A wound is born when a hurt is unaddressed, and the fallout of that is another road to burnout. The reason that I'm sharing this with you is because I want you to understand that if you've only thought of burnout as overworking at work, you've misunderstood how big of a beast this thing really is. You don't have to go to a nine-to-five job. You don't have to work overtime hours. You don't have to travel for work to burn out. You have to be a human being who's put their hope in something and has tried as hard as they can and lives in a broken world where things are not always going to work out the way that you want. Relationship fallout, it's coming. If it hasn't happened yet, God bless you. If you've made it to be an adult and you've never had a relationship break, that's a miracle on its own. It's gonna change fast, unfortunately. It's just the way the world is. What about failure? Nobody's really good at everything they do. Even people who try to only do things that they're good at, sometimes they get it wrong and they end up failing and they stumble and they fall and that investment of time and resources comes up negative. It doesn't give them the thing that they thought it was gonna give them. And then fatigue is just sort of a factor in the way that we live. We live so fast, we do so much all the time for so many people that we get very, very tired. And deeper than tired, we become exhausted. Burnout has these broad causes and left unaddressed, all three of these things will cause you to tap into the deepest reservoir of resources that you have. So the Bible uses the word spirit to describe uh, what we are made of, our essence as people. Again, we talked about this a lot in the Imago Day series. I won't re-preach it to you now. But the Bible also uses the word spirit to sort of categorize as an adjective, spiritual, to categorize all the inside parts of our life. So the things that we think, the things that we hope for, the stuff that matters to us, our ideals, our imagination, our creativity, our problem-solving ability, all those things are considered non-physical. They just kind of float around somewhere inside of us and we can access them if we need to, but they're hard to like show someone else. You can't like, this is my right hand, I can show you that. I can't really show you my creativity. I can't really show you my willpower. I have to exercise it in some way and then you can see the product. I hope that makes sense to you. What I'm trying to say to you is, is there's this deeper reservoir of those things of your personal willpower, of your creativity, of your ability to go above and beyond, and that reservoir is limited. There's one reservoir that you live out of daily, and it kind of refills on a daily basis. It's all the stuff that you need to just get through life. But there's another one that's kind of on reserve, and you use it for crises, and you use it for big projects, and you use it for major life decisions, and I feel like I'm probably getting too theoretical, so just look at the screen, if you will, and I wanna show you what I'm talking about, okay? Inside of you, I think there are two batteries. One of those batteries is a daily battery, 
The other is what I'm going to call a reserve battery. I would have liked to illustrate this by putting the daily battery on top and the reserve battery underneath, but that's not the way the screen is oriented. So they're side by side, but you'll just know we're kind of working left to right here, okay? My right, yeah, my right, your left, yeah, daily to, okay, good, daily to reserve. I wanna use the, the correct hand here, all right. The daily battery is the pool of resources that God has given you to live a daily life. It exists for you to get up, get dressed, brush your teeth, take care of your kids, go to school, go to work, get a little exercise, eat a salad, drink some water, watch a show, go to bed. I mean, more or less, that's kind of a day, right? I mean, sprinkle in some other responsibilities and activities, and that's kind of how we live our lives. And that's good. God wants us to use up the resources that we've been given. We've been given a will for a reason. We've been made physical beings in a physical world so that we can have an impact on the world. So we can build things and break things and create new stuff and come up with ideas and problem solve and help and hold and do all the things that we can do physically. That's good. But there's another battery that exists that God has made available to us that we're not supposed to live out of on a daily basis. So let me show you what I'm talking about here. Your daily battery is on a 24-hour cycle. And for the most part, when you get up in the morning, your hope would be, if you're like me, I think you're probably this way, if you're at all an optimist, your hope would be that the level of your battery is where that green line is, pretty close to full, okay? I don't think any of us can lie to ourselves and say that we're getting 100% sleep like we should and 100% nutrients and all that. But we're hopefully floating in the 80 to 90% range when our head pops off the pillow when our alarm goes off. Throughout the day, we do daily normal tasks that hopefully on their own are not terribly stressful. Now, I know some of you work in the emergency room or other settings similar to a pastor where kind of every time your phone rings, it's somebody else's crisis on the line and they need help and they need you to focus and they need you to dial in and you have to tap that reserve battery. We'll talk about that in a minute. But for most of us, we're living in a world where we have a group of tasks that we have to do that are maybe high stakes, but we're good enough at them that we're probably gonna get it right and we're just gonna naturally drain that battery down to the red line by the time our head hits the pillow at night. That's what we want. We don't wanna be lazy. Laziness would be, I don't ever wanna use any of my battery because God gave it to me and it's too important. No, God gave it to you to use it. So you wanna be draining that battery all day long and then making wise choices that recharge it. And it recharges pretty much passively. It recharges by you getting good rest. It recharges by you exercising and using the body that God gave you, being a good steward of your body, eating well, drinking the right kinds of things. This is good. The reserve battery, on the other hand, goes generally unused for most of us. It's available for crises. It's available for stress. It's that part of you that you have to tap into when you can feel that something unexpected and probably negative has come your way. You get that phone call that you dread, the one that says that somebody's been in a car wreck, in my example. And it's the end of the day, and you're already tired, and you're already kind of on your way to bed, and you have a choice to make. You go, I can either say I don't have the resources to be a part of this conversation and opt out, or what most of us would do is say, I gotta dig a little deeper. I gotta make a cup of coffee, wake my brain back up again, and tap into some other pool of resources that's not my daily pool of resources so that I can grind a little bit and make it through whatever this issue is. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think God gave you that battery so that you would use it as well. He knows that life is going to be stressful. He knows that there are going to be crises all the time in your life and in the lives of other people whom you love. His intention is that you use this battery, but that you use it responsibly. Here's the primary difference between these two batteries, and here's what this has to do with burnout. Your daily battery recharges on its own on a daily basis if you live somewhat responsibly the way your parents probably taught you to when you were a kid eat your green vegetables, take a shower, drink some water, go to bed on time, those kinds of things. Whether or not you do that, that's up to you. Maybe you don't, but you could. You know how. It's not a mystery. This other battery, the reserve battery, is not recharged that way. 
the reserve battery is only recharged. I'm going to use a phrase I used earlier when I talked to you about Sabbath initially. It's only recharged by disruptive rest. God's prescription for you to Sabbath, which we are just about to read from God's word, is connected to a very basic need that you have. Here's why I'm saying this to you and taking this much time to make this simple point is because I believe that most of us think that rest is almost sinful. Stepping back from serving in the church, stepping back from doing more at work, stepping back from being on that auxiliary board, that volunteer organization, having our kids a part of every single after-school sport that they possibly could be a part of. If we say no to any of those things, we are worried that we have somehow compromised our potential, that we have said to God, well, God, you gave me this opportunity, but I'm just not going to act on it, and that that's somehow wrong. What the principle of Sabbath wants to tell us is that we are all doing a lot more already than God needs us to do. One of the messages of the gospel is that the work of the Christian, whether it be the work of the church or the individual Christian themselves, that the majority of that work is finished. It's complete in Christ. We don't have to redig all of Jesus' trenches. We don't have to rebuild all the walls of Jesus' church. He is doing that work for us. He has completed it on the cross, and then he works it out in real time in our lives. Now again, the other caveat of this is this is not a sermon to influence you to totally disengage with the life of the church. But this is a sermon that's supposed to wake you up to the idea that you'll never know if you're doing too much, too little, or enough unless you get your hands on some tools that tell you whether God thinks you are doing too much, too little, or enough. What I suspect based on the Bible's teaching about Sabbath is that almost all of us are doing too much. Somewhere between enough and too much. Now, maybe when it comes to the church, we're doing too little. I don't know. Again, that's between you and the Spirit. But if we take our whole lives in view, if we're not choosing to engage in rest, in rest excuse me, in a way that disrupts the rest of our lives, we're not participating in Sabbath as a mindset or even as a practice. My last point about this, and maybe I lost you, maybe this is too theoretical, so just dial in for me. I think this is going to speak to you about your own experience. The most important reality, I think, of this whole battery system is this, that whatever level your reserve battery is at functions as the cap for your daily battery. This is why burnout is so terrible. Because when I have tapped my reserve battery down to the crisis or even the burnout level, I'm putting a cap on how high my daily battery can recharge. This is why when we burn out, we wake up exhausted. Because our capacity to be recharged is diminished. It goes down when we have over-tapped that deeper reservoir of resources that God has given to us. My friends, the point is this, if I've been unclear along the way, if you choose not to recharge that reserve battery by participating in Sabbath, you will burn out. And once you burn out, you will try to solve that burnout with lots of little solutions that won't help you. There is a threat to your Christianity in play here. You will go to the church and ask the church, what do I do when I am burnt out? And the church will give you lots of different answers about more Bible study or more devotional time or an earlier bedtime or a better diet or take a vacation, you just need a week or start spending one evening for an hour and a half focused on how things are going and write it all down. The church will probably hand you a task, which is more work to do, if we can be honest with each other. The Sabbath hands you the opposite. The Sabbath hands you a void, which is a lot scarier than a task. If you give me a task, I can do that task and I can probably do it better than most of you. Or at least I'll try. I'll do my best, okay? Maybe not. But that's sort of, if we can agree, the type A's in the room are like cracking our knuckles. Where do we begin, okay? When someone tells you, I need you to do nothing on purpose for a set amount of time, like to be a baby? I don't know what you mean. I've never done that in my life. Like I just 
if I'm not doing something for work, then I'm doing something for fun. And if I'm not doing something for fun, I'm catching up on a chore that I neglected, or I'm texting somebody back from college that I haven't talked to in two decades, or, I mean, the list just goes on and on and on. I never run out of stuff to do. So you're telling me that I'm supposed to stop everything for what? For what reason? Well, that's where I want us to go together. So let's look at Genesis chapter 2 and see what God has to say about rest. We're going to look at three passages. We're going to move quickly through these three and try to build a case, and then we'll be done together this morning. In Genesis chapter 2, God has finished the work of creation. We looked at Genesis chapter 1 a few weeks ago when we looked at the doctrine of the image of God, and we saw that God created the heavens and the earth. He worked for six days. He created mankind, and then he does something different here at the beginning of chapter 2. So even though your Bible says this is chapter 2, verse 1, it's really just the next verse in chapter 1. It tells the same story, and that's what it's referencing when Moses wrote this down. It says, The heavens and the earth were completed with everything that was in them. So God did all the work that God meant to do. That's what verse 1 tells us. He's finished. Verse 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work that he had been doing, and he ceased on the seventh day all the work that he had been doing. Why is the Bible being repetitive? So that it can be extremely clear with us. God is done. The work is done. He's not taking a break from the work. The work is finished. Verse 3. God blessed the seventh day, and he made the seventh day holy, and holy simply means set apart or cut apart from the rest, that God is giving this seventh day a different purpose, a different designation of value from the first six days in which he did the work of creation. Why did God do that? Because on the seventh day, this is the end of verse three, he ceased all the work that he had been doing in creation. God is the author of creation. He designed the world All life is based on his life. All relationships are based on his relationship with himself as a triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit. The church is built on his example. Nature is built on his example. The sky was his idea. The birds, the animals, the fish, all of them belong to him. When God was done, God acknowledged that all these things were good by nature, and then he just went back to heaven and kind of wound up the world and let it run free. No, he didn't. He took a particular period of time to stop and intentionally be in that creation, to just exist, which God himself is the basis for all existence, so in a way that makes a lot of sense, but on the other hand, it doesn't, because if I think I'm prolific, if I think I'm effective, if I think I'm productive, and all I want to do is work, 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 well, surely God would be justified to just keep on working, right? He enjoyed the work. He said that it was good. It pleased him to do it, so why would he stop? Why would he take a break at the end and set aside a whole entire other day to just be in the midst of creation, to just exist, to rest? God doesn't give us that answer yet. He will later in the Bible, and we're going to get there in just a minute. But for now, we should be asking ourselves that. Why does God want to set this aside? What is the purpose of this? What does God have in mind? Now, you'll notice that God doesn't make rest a law yet. He simply rests by example. All of creation rests with him. That's because the world as we know it today is not the same world that God was resting in in Genesis 2. One chapter later in Genesis 3, everything breaks and changes. Sin enters the world, and for the first time, people decide they're going to go their own way. And so lots of things that were true about creation have to be turned into laws and commandments, because otherwise we would never do what God told us to do. So that broken world after Genesis 3, that's the world that we live in. It's also the world into which God birthed his people, the nation of Israel. So I want to show you in Exodus 20, after God set his people free from Egypt, what he decided to do with this idea of rest. It's been baked into the DNA of creation. Now God's going to make it a law. Here's what God says. This is the fourth, I think, of the Ten Commandments. He says, remember the Sabbath day to set it apart as holy. For six days you may labor, you may do all your work, 
which is exactly what God did. He did all of his work. He labored. But the seventh day is now a Sabbath or a Shabbat to the Lord, the Lord who is your God. On that day, you will not work. And then listen to how specific God has to get with these knucklehead Israelites because they're looking for loopholes, just like you would be too. He says, you may not do any work. Your son may not do any work. Your daughter may not do any work. Your male servant may not do any work. Your female servant may not do any work. Your cattle may not do any work. So you have to tell the cows they have to take a day off too. And even the resident foreigner who has come into your gates may not do any work. Even a traveling salesman, a woman who weaves, who is from Moab or Canaan, she can't weave in the city gates on the Sabbath. Why does God have to do that? Because God knows that these guys are going to go, well, we can't do the work, but the work has to get done, so we'll make the slaves do the work. We'll make the servants do the work. We'll make the cows just pull the plow, and we'll stand far enough away that we're not technically working, but we'll oversee it. God knew that even if he gave us a weekend, we were going to work all weekend, okay? So if you get frustrated with your spouse for checking emails on a Saturday, it's in our nature. God knows it about us. And he has to be explicit and clear that this is for all the people in your midst. All of them will stop. All of them will rest. A couple of books later in the Old Testament, Moses is getting ready to die, and he's reiterating some of these laws to God's people. And he says in Deuteronomy 5 to God's people that part of the purpose of the Sabbath is not just that they rest, but that they would announce their liberation to the people around them. That by choosing not to work, they would be expressing a certain kind of freedom in God that was not available, that was not normal, that was not culturally relevant to anybody else on the face of the earth. Now, why does God make that statement? Let's keep reading here in Exodus 20. He goes on to say, For six days the Lord made the heavens, he made the earth, he made the sea, all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. And therefore, the Lord blessed the seventh day, and he set it apart as holy. God is anchoring this law about rest back in the creation narrative. He's saying, I did this on purpose. I rested, and therefore you will rest. I made you in my image, so you will do as I do. I have redeemed you out from Egypt where you were slaves, where all you did was overproduce and overconsume. Think of these people. God's moved them out of Egypt and that's great. That removes them from the context. They don't have slave masters anymore. There's no Pharaoh beating them up if they aren't productive enough. Those are good things objectively. God should have done that. But that doesn't change their hearts right away. The place where they grew up, the culture that they came from, their family, their roots, their hometown, if you will, was a place where all you do is work. And if you don't work, we kill you. You die. You're no good to us. These people had been dehumanized, broken down into what they could do for the culture, for the world, and then built back up as machines. They had been mechanized, if you will. God has to command rest into their lives, even though they would probably love to rest because it is so different from the way that they view the world. I think we are a lot more like those Israelites than we are Adam and Eve who were walking in the garden and resting with God because it was automatic. I think we too, from the time that we are very small, are broken down and convinced that productivity is one of the most important parts of who we are. That if we can't produce, if we can't work, if we won't work, if we can't make something bigger, better, faster, stronger, and more of it, and then sell it to other people, that we haven't arrived, that we haven't achieved what our life is supposed to be about. I think this has been the trajectory of human history for a really long time. One of my very favorite authors is a guy named Wendell Berry. Wendell is still alive. He lives in central Kentucky. He's written poetry and essays and books. And I love this quote from him about the direction that humanity is headed. He says in his essay, Life is a Miracle, he says, It is easy for me to imagine that the next great division of the world will be between people who wish to live as creatures and people who wish to live as machines. This is the world, the context into which God is speaking in Exodus 20. 
he's got a bunch of people that are supposed to be his people that are supposed to be in love with him and focused on him and in awe of the miracles he did to set them free from Egypt and all they want to do is work. Work, 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 work. And so God has to make a law. He has to get in their business and say to them, I will force you if I have to, to live as a creature and not a machine. And we are the same way. This is not a normal idea. One of the great frustrations of my spiritual journey is I have never met a minister who could teach me to Sabbath. They don't do it. They work six days and then they go on and work the seventh one too. And that's their busiest work day because it's the day that church happens on a Sunday. They might take a day off they might rest, they might wait till they hit the wall and then pull the emergency brake and say, I need three days off this week because I got a bunch of stuff built up with my family that I gotta get to. But there is no regular, intentional practice of a Sabbath with God. God says, keep it holy, make it separate. That implies boundaries, that implies specific expectations, that implies I'm gonna do certain things on my Sabbath that I don't do the rest of the week. And I'm not gonna do a lot of things on my Sabbath that I do the rest of the week. And we'll get to that, that's why we're gonna take five weeks on this, I'm gonna try to build out for you the four major pieces of what a Sabbath is, and give you a lot of time to chew on this. But for now, the concept stands that God built rest into creation and then had to command it because we were broken by sin. But what does Jesus have to say about this? Jesus brings a new covenant where so much of the Old Testament law we no longer have to perform and achieve, but it's done for us. So what does he have to say about the nature of the Sabbath? If you'd like to turn in your Bible to Mark chapter two, you're welcome to do that. If you don't want to, I'll show you the verses on the screen. But Jesus is confronted, as he is many times in his life, by people who would like to catch him in a lie. They would like to prove that he doesn't know what he's talking about, that he's unwise, that he's unsafe to follow, that he's not orthodox, whatever word you want to choose there, but that he's kind of making this new religion that isn't really about God and isn't safe. And so these guys show up and they see Jesus and his disciples doing something that they don't like and they confront him. And along the way, they have a really interesting conversation about the Sabbath. This is beginning in verse 23 of Mark chapter two. Jesus was walking through the grain fields on a Sabbath day. So the Bible assumes that you know what this is. We just read about it. This is the exact same Sabbath that God created initially in Genesis, but then built out as a law in Exodus 20. And his disciples began to pick some heads of wheat as they made their way through the grain field. Why does that matter? Because in this society, picking grain is a job. It's work. And so you don't do work on the Sabbath. Now, the Bible never says you can't pick the heads of grain on the Sabbath. But the law keepers of Jesus' day had taken God's laws and expanded them and made them a massive industry in which you could succeed and rise and fall and make money and lose money and make status and lose status. And so it's a big, giant game to them where the stakes are incredibly high. And they decided that one of the interpretations of the law would be that you can't pick grain heads on a Sabbath. So are God's men doing what they shouldn't do? Not technically, but they're making the Pharisees pretty mad. So the Pharisees say in verse 24, look to Jesus. They snap their fingers in his face. Hey, Jesus, why are these disciples doing what is going against the law on the Sabbath? Now, Jesus loves them enough that he doesn't just rip them apart right there on the spot. He waits a few more chapters till the end of his ministry to really let them know what he thinks of them. But he decides instead of answering their question to present them with a problem that they can't solve because of how their interpretation of the law is so screwed up. He says, have you never read what David did? When David was in need and he and his companions were hungry, how David entered the house of God when Abiathar was high priest and David ate the sacred bread, which is against the law for any but the priests to eat, and he also gave it to his companions. Jesus is saying, hey, that's a funny question. Here's an even harder one. What do you do with this? How do you interpret David, who you love, who you sing songs about as your greatest Jewish king? 
How do you interpret his desecration of not just some field of wheat that me and my disciples are walking through, but of the literal bread that has been designated for God himself? David cut it up and they had sandwiches. Have you read that? Did you know that was in the Bible? This is supposed to be a little bit insulting to the Pharisees who have the whole Tanakh memorized. Jesus is saying, you got a little bit of like an issue, a kink in your logic here, Pharisees. Not sure if you've thought about that before. Then he claims divinity. This is the most important part for the sake of the question that we're asking. Jesus says the Sabbath was made for people. That's a key idea. Well, what would the other way of interpreting it be? He says the other way to think about it would be that people are for the Sabbath, but that's not true. Even the order of creation tells us this. God did not make a day of rest and then produce people to stuff into the Sabbath and give the Sabbath purpose. People came first on the sixth day, and then God rested, and those people and all of creation rested with him. Jesus says the Sabbath was made for people, for mankind. It's a gift from God to you. It is not something you are obligated to worship and and observe or else, which is why I gave you the caveat that I gave you this morning. I'm not trying to say that your salvation hinges on the Sabbath. What I am trying to say is God loves you enough to give you something that you and most of the Christians that you know have never even tried to engage in. What does Jesus say last? He says, for this reason, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. If the Sabbath is for mankind, and God gave us the Sabbath, and then God gave us the Savior. Then the Savior is the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus is saying, I am even Lord on the Sabbath. In other words, Jesus is saying, to observe a Sabbath is in a way to acknowledge my Lordship. It's worship. You don't just Sabbath because you burnt out and you're looking for a solution. I hope I got your attention with that example earlier. I'm glad I spent my time talking to you about that. But what I want to try to do in these five weeks is move you to a place where you're not just saying, well, if I start to burn out, now I have a solution and I know what to do. Instead, I want you to realize that you are burning out because you are not Sabbathing. There is a sense in which Jesus is not Lord of all of your life if you insist on working all seven days. In other words, my friends, and I'm just trying to be as clear as I can here, to choose to set aside a Sabbath is an act of worship. You do it for God. What's interesting is Jesus says that it's designed for you. So it's this really cool cyclical relationship thing where you set it aside for God and you fill it up with things that cause you to remember God's presence, to engage in prayer, to pray for all those people you told you were gonna pray this week but maybe forgot to do, to to sit quietly with God, to work through what's the next big decision coming up, to work through your anxiety, to work through your wounds, to just simply delight and enjoy God's presence and his creation. All of these are factors in the Sabbath. We enter into the Sabbath with a posture of worship toward God, but God capitalizes on the practice of Sabbath by restoring us. He builds us back up. You remember those two batteries. That reserve battery can only be tapped by things like the Sabbath. Recharged is what I mean. Tapped means drained. That was confusing. That reserve battery can only be recharged by disruptive rest like a Sabbath by choosing to push back against all the other things that you could be doing. And I'll just tell you, when I started practicing Sabbath, it was excruciatingly painful. I think I had to hit burnout before I would have been willing to do something as extreme as practice a weekly Sabbath. Because just do the math. If I have a 24-hour day that I'm supposed to just get rid of every day in my week, where all the work I was going to do, all the productivity, all the catching up, all the entertainment, all the conversations, all the relationships just go away, I can't just take those 24 hours and sprinkle them across the other six days in my week. I can't make every day 28 hours long so that I can have a Sabbath. I have to do some really hard work. I have to eliminate some things that I've been doing. I have to stop doing certain things that I thought were important. I have to reprioritize what is going to have the most value, and therefore, what am I going to spend the most time and attention on in my Christian walk? 
This is why the Sabbath isn't just rest, it's disruptive rest. It's the kind of rest that gets in your face, that's frustrating, that might cause you to disappoint other people. The guarantee and promise of the Sabbath is this. If you will engage in it, it will restore you. If you are a person who is sick and tired of the rat race, God knows about that. He has given you a solution to that. And it's not hand-built for 2024 Western civilization. It's been in the DNA of people from the beginning. This is not a new problem. God has known from the very first moments of creation that he would rest as an example, that that rest would then be a command, that that command would then be something God's people would really wrestle with. And so even Jesus himself would have to show up on the scene and say, yes, a lot has changed since I arrived. The Sabbath has not. It's a gift for you, and I am Lord of that day as well. So in conclusion today, I want to invite you to do something. I really just want to give you permission, because I know this about people. I know that if you're, if you're on your way to burnout, there's really only two solutions. One, you can just burn out, which is fine. God will save you. He's good. I think he'll meet you in that burnout like he met me in mine. So that may just be the way it has to go for you. But I think the other way forward is somebody with some spiritual authority has to give you permission to do less. So I want to do that. I just want to give you permission I want to tell you that if your objective, if the, if the time we've spent together the last couple of years has whet your appetite for God's presence, if you as a Christian are desperate to know what it means to actually live with God moment by moment in your daily life, that you have permission to do that, and in order to do it, you may have to cut in line a little bit. That's been my experience. I couldn't find a minister further down the road. I had never met anybody who practiced Sabbath. I wasn't aware of Christian pastors that were around in my life who were going out of their way to set a day aside as holy as unto the Lord. I didn't know how to do it. I didn't know where to start. And so I had to cut in line. I couldn't wait for those people who had been so helpful and so important in my faith journey to finally figure it out and enter into God's presence. I had to be willing in the kindest way possible to step just a little bit to the side and move forward on my own. My hope for you is that I can be a trailblazer to you in some way. Maybe my experience will help you. Maybe it just opens up the idea that this is even a possibility for you in your life. But I want to give you permission to cut in line when it comes to any part of your spiritual practice, to just run toward God's presence. You don't have to wait for your life group leader to get it. You don't have to wait for a deacon or an elder or that online pastor that you listen to when you work out, whoever it is. These people don't have to get it before you get it. God has come to you. He's built a relationship with you. He has paid for your sins. Now, we ought not function independently of one another. We ought not run off and leave everybody behind. But when it comes to God's presence, we're not going to leave anybody behind. We're all headed that direction by default. That's where we want to be. We want to meet each other in God's presence. And so, my friends, don't wait for all the saints who've gone before you to figure this out. This is something that the church has really lost. We don't know how to do this. Even the legalistic arms of Western Christianity that would tell you that you can't do any work on a Sunday and you should close your business and never check email, even that heart is not the heart that wants to know God better. It's the heart that's just trying to follow the law. It's the same heart Jesus pushes back against in Mark chapter two. We have lost our way. We have lost our sense of giving back to God and spending with God a big, major, significant chunk of our week, every week, of every month, if you practice Sabbath 52 weeks a year, that's 52 days that you'll have spent with just God every year. That's almost two months of your life that you won't have made progress with work, that you won't have accomplished more tasks, that you won't have moved forward or farther up or deeper into whatever the thing is that your life is built about. The other way to view that is that that's an incredible mercy on your life, that you could spend that much time with God and that it's available to you. So my encouragement to you, my friends, at this stage of this conversation is to just open your mind to the possibility. I know some of you work shifts. I know some of you don't have a day off, if you will, every seven days. The principle is what matters. 
The way that we apply these concepts is what matters. And honestly, for some of us, we may find as we navigate this journey that God has something completely different in mind for us, even when it comes to our career. That maybe valuing him and following him is more important than making the maximum amount of money or whatever else it is that we've been basing our lives on. So I just want to ask you to be open-minded. I want you to consider what this could mean for you. And hopefully you'll come back next week and we're going to dig a lot more deeper into the first part of what Sabbath actually is and what you have to stop doing before you can choose to spend a day with God like this. So I want to pray that for you. Thank you for your time and attention this morning. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for being present with us today. I know that this uh, practice has the potential to be pretty disruptive. Uh, My ask is this, God, that you would give us enough faith in you that we would just be open-minded, that maybe it could be. All the reasons that immediately come to mind that tell us this could never work, we could never do it, we're way too busy, what would we do with our kids, what would we do about our job schedule, what would we do about this, what would we do about that, that those are questions we can ask you and that you'll answer. But it's going to take faith to do that and not try to solve these problems on our own from our own power. So I pray, God, as I do all the time, that you would build our faith in you, that faith wouldn't be like an exercise, but it would really be something like viscerally real, like tangible within us that we can push against to make decisions even if we don't know the outcome. I pray that you build that faith. I pray to God that you would allow us to be open about this, that as folks are skeptical or unsure or maybe certain that this would never work for them and it could never happen, that you would just let us speak to one another, that we could be an encouragement, that we could be good listeners, that we could be present in those conversations. And then, God, that you would, that you would inspire us to be a people who, like the Israelites, pronounce our liberation to our neighbors by choosing to rest in a way that is disruptive. I trust you, Father. We love you. That's why we're here today. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, amen.